This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled A Child's View of a Prairie, and joining me from Wisconsin is the author, Susan C. McDermott. Welcome to the program, Susan. Oh, thank you very much. Obviously, well, obviously not to the, to the listeners, but to me because I'm looking at it. This is a book that's really targeted towards children. How did this book come about? What is your background and why become an author for children? Well, actually, it came about um, when I was a single mother, and I had two little boys, which are on the front cover, and we didn't have much money. So at first, I took a uh, course that was offered on prairie plants. Hmm. The a, a nice gentleman from the Department of Natural Resources in Wisconsin was uh, putting on a course, and I thought, well, you know, it didn't cost much, so I thought, I'll be outside, and I can do that. So it was really nice. It was very interesting, and um, the gentleman was really nice, and he took me around personally to all the different prairies in my area, Yes. and then he talked about all the different flowers, and he said I could go out there and photograph. Beautiful. And I really hadn't done much photography at that time, but I thought, well, I have a camera, I have two kids, and we'll just tramp around outside for some, you know, helpful exercise. Um, so then I just decided, well, maybe I'll just take some pictures. I took pictures of every prairie plant in Wisconsin. Wow. And, um, gave, uh, slideshows to, um, garden clubs and the men's garden club of America, I think has one of my slideshows and, uh, and just did a whole bunch of stuff for garden clubs or just any other club that wanted, uh, you know, to look at, uh, slides of, uh, the prairie. You know, and then I decided to take uh, pictures with my children, showing the different types of prairie plants and what's unique with them. Have you always been an outdoor person? Yeah. Well, we we were on, um, we lived on a small farmette, and so we were outside all the time gardening and raising animals and stuff, the boys and I. So So we were outside a lot, and it was free. Oh, that part. For somebody who didn't have much money. Well, that's a, that's that's a perfect combination. Your photos are beautiful, and uh, I will say this: in the forty-eight pages, there are pictures and photos everywhere, including the description of the wildflowers and grasses. Was it an extensive time frame that it took to to get all of these photos together, and then you decided, rather than just show it to my family, I'd like to share it with friends and and other people around the globe. Well, I actually just wanted to do it for my children hmm. and grandchildren that they'd have um, pictures of like them or their dad or their grandpa, however many generations it goes down. And it took me a while to take them with the kids. They're in various outfits. They're not in the same outfit every time. And, and the plants, you know, they start out um, small in the spring and there's different type of spring prairie plants. There's actually three different types of prairies. You have like a dry prairie, a regular prairie, and a wet prairie. Hmm. So you you have to go through a whole season or a couple seasons to get 
find the different plants. The ones that are the spring ones are usually shorter, and then they're more medium-sized plants in the summer. And then at the end, you have like your grasses and your really tall prairie plants, like prairie dock and that type of thing, where where they get really tall. Some of them are very, you know, they can get seven, eight feet tall. Incredible. The different. Yeah, so you have to kind of go through the whole season, and I took, just to get those pictures, probably thousands of pictures to get really good close-up ones of the flowers. Beautiful. And some of the insects on the on the prairie, because it's a different type of um, landscape the prairies are. Is there some folklore uh, associated with the prairies in Wisconsin? Well, it's probably the prairies that are all over the Midwest. They're probably all about the same thing. Yes, a lot of the uh, Native um, Americans use different types of either the flower or the plant or the bulb that's under the plant Mm. to make um, different medicines or to put into soups. Um, Have you you done that as well? I mean, this this was a journey in addition to just something uh, from an activity standpoint for your kids and you. Uh, Have you also adapted some of those practices? Well, no, I've never, ever. When you go onto the prairie, they're usually protected. Okay. So you can't, like, dig things up. But Hmm. you can, um, I did gather some seeds from the prairie, and then I started my own um, prairie nursery. And then I had a lot of prairies in my, a lot of prairie plants in my yard, the ones that, um, you could, uh, you know, that I just sold the seeds for. Yeah. Gathered the seeds and sold them. Like, uh, we have a huge marsh up here, Horicon Marsh. Yes. And they bought a lot of seeds because they were uh, putting a lot of their land into prairie plants, mm. you know, for the different types of species of birds and whatever. Plus, they come up every year, and they're very hardy prairie plants are. It started as a, a lot of people... Yeah, started started as a hobby, and now it's uh, become a, co- a cottage industry. Uh, would that be a, a proper evaluation of what you've discovered? Yeah, it it kept morphing into different types of things you can do. And if if you have the the plants growing in your yard, then you can actually sell the seeds. And I mean, every year you get seeds from them because they're perennials. They come up every year. It takes a while to get uh, prairie plants started because they usually work on their roots first before they even get to the flowering stage they like to get their roots set down in the ground and you know and then they some of those roots go down you know seven eight feet into the ground really there's some of the plants yeah I have somewhere the like the prairie dock or the compass plant where I, I'm showing the, the boys uh, touching them and the leaves are very cold because the plant the roots go down so far and then they bring up that cold water into the leaves. It could be middle of summer when it's hot, and those leaves would be cold. Fascinating. Or like like compass plant, the leaves and and the flowers, uh, they, um, you can get directions off of them. Mm. They usually always go in a north-south direction. <laughs> you know, so instead of looking for moss on a tree, there aren't any trees on a prairie usually. But, you know, you can kind of get some type of direction if you're lost. So maybe the Indians uh, would use that as a guide. Guide, I don't know. Absolutely. No, well, but, was um, was there anything you discovered on this journey of uh, you know visiting the prairies and uh, discovering what nature had to offer? Anything that surprised you, perhaps? 
Um, yes, yeah, some of the, I mean, some of the plants are, there's one plant that's called um, Rattlesnake Master. Hmm. And it looks like a yucca plant. I have that in the book. It's got, the flower heads are like little white balls that have little uh, little spikes on them. And the bottom is like something you'd find out in the desert. Huh. And uh, I think they, the pioneers believe that the tea made from the roots would heal rattlesnake rattlesnake bites. Really? Has that right, been, yeah. Whether that, it does or not, I yeah, have no idea. That's that, what they That believe. was a question I was going to ask, whether <laughs> they've uh, actually brought that to the present century and discovered that it maybe actually works. It could. There's a lot of stuff that uh, that the pioneers did use off of, I mean, different. it wouldn't have to be a prairie plant, but off of prairie plants that, um, like bergamot makes a tea. I still people just make tea out of that Absolutely. now. Absolutely, right. You know, there's like different types of lilies. There's one that's called a Turk, Turk's cap lily, and that uh, forms like a little cap on the top. The the flower head does. It, it's really neat. For you see a regular lily just opens up. Yes. You know, like an Easter lily type of thing. But this one, they kind of curl up and look like a Turk's cap. Amazing. Like something that uh, over in Turkey they wear. Yeah, they're they're some of them are just so unusual. And they have, um, I did get a picture of a uh, a moth that looks like a hummingbird. Really? That is really, yeah, that is really a neat one. They come out during the day, those moths. You think they're a hummingbird, but they're really not. You have fascinating and, uh, pictures. They're beautifully done. Uh, have you... Have you dreamed of being an author for a long time, or was this just the evolution of your personal enjoyment of being on the prairies and and uh, doing the photography? Well, I never thought I'd be an author, no. That was not high on my list of things to do, and it took me a while. I didn't write this book uh, probably for 20 years after, you know, after really? I took the pictures. Mm. 25 years, yeah. Um, I've had all those pictures, slides, for a long time. Um, but no, I, I don't know. It's just, there wasn't one out there that was a picture book. They have a lot of field guides, prairie field guides, but yes. they really had nothing that was geared towards children hmm. or grandparents or parents that could use it and guide children through a prairie. We have, uh, our, one of our grandsons school has a prairie. So I gave him a few books. And we went out on the prairie with the books, and then they could learn to identify the different types because there's a lot like yellow coneflower or black-eyed Susan that they put on there and, and the different types of grasses, purple prairie clover. There's, they're really unusual-looking plants. A lot of school libraries, I've been putting it in libraries, school libraries and libraries that uh, people could check it out and just, you know, go outside with their children versus sitting in you know, on, on a game machine, <laughs> on a Wii or something. <laughs> the kids outside, and, yes. and they could actually take and identify these or get some in your home garden, and the child could look and look through it and, you know, any, help identify it. Any, any reviews at this point? Have you gotten feedback oh, on the book? Yes, I actually did have three really good reviews, which I'm surprised. Um, Midwest Book Review did one um and they highly recommended it. I don't think you want me to read all the reviews. But I actually had two 
of the big reviewers, the Pacific Book Review and U.S. Review of Books, um, that did really good reviews on this, you know, for children, grandchildren, grandparents, parents could buy it for their library. And and someone with a short attention span like I am, or like I have, uh, 48 pages is something I can absorb, and the photos would keep me interested. Plus, I would learn a lot. I, I love the way you've uh, outlined this. Very colorful book. Uh, is there anything in the future? Are you planning to maybe uh, increase the number of pages or re- re-release this maybe uh, with, with more content? Um, no, I really wasn't going to put more content in it. I didn't think I made it an ebook finally. Ah. Um, but I did, I haven't even thought about putting, I could because there's so many different types of prairie plants that, that you could put in here. Um, I haven't thought that far yet. I, I've been working on other things. Well, beautiful. That. Beautiful. This is, this is again, 48 pages and uh, grandparents, parents, children would enjoy this and find it not only a, 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 an entertaining book, but also educational. The title of the book, again, is A Child's View of a Prairie. And my author, who has joined me from Wisconsin, is Susan C. McDermott. Uh, Susan, uh, my listeners and grandparents and all of those who might benefit from this, how do they get a copy of it? Um, well, it's on, it's actually, I have a website. Beautiful. That it's on. And then they can read read the reviews, and it actually won National Best Book Award, and it won the International Best Book Award in its category. Wonderful. So Amazon so, and um, Barnes and Noble, all of those would have it as well. I'm guessing. Oh yeah, Google, and if you want my website, I can give you please, that. Yes, please okay. share that. It's just www.susanmcdermott.com. MC. And then people can. Uh, M C R, yeah, D E R M O T T, T T. Correct, Susan. Thank you for joining me and sharing your story. This is again a very beautiful book and uh, nicely done. Forty-eight pages, easy read, but also entertaining and inspiring at the same time. Thank you for sharing your story today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at Toginet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcast. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at scott at toginetradio.com. That's S-C-O-T-T at T-O-G-I-N-E-T-R-A-D-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title, Remaking the American Dream. And joining me from near Chicago in the United States of America is the author, David Vaught. David, welcome to the program, sir. 
Good to be with you, Jay. Glad to talk about my uh, my book. This book really is a focus on pretty much the years of uh, of nineteen sixty nine, seventy, somewhere in that general vicinity. Uh, the book itself deals with military background. Your father, I believe, was in the military in World War II. You followed his steps yeah. to some degree and entered the military academy at West Point. What is this book about, and what is the remaking of the American Dream? I uh, I went to West Point. Everybody that goes to West Point is a volunteer. We were in the Cold War. The Russians were the bad guys. They still are to some extent. Yep. And uh, I wanted to be an Army officer. I was kind of following my father's footsteps. He was an artillery gunner in World War II. And uh, so I showed up at West Point and, and did a pretty good job for a little farm boy from Burnt Prairie, Illinois. But by the time I reached my last year there, this whole idea of requiring people to a particular religious observance, who was called Cadet Chapel, just didn't sit well with me as, mm. a, as, a, as a Baptist from Southern Illinois. I thought it conflicted with the Constitution. And we as officers and cadets at the military academy, we swore to defend and support the Constitution, that right there on the hill above the plains set the, the chapel in direct violation of that. It was, a, it was a conflict that needed to be resolved, a contradiction, really, that needed to be resolved. So, so a number of us cadets uh, decided we would try to uh, speak up for that and see if we could uh, uh, advocate a change. Do you think that might have also been the culture of the 60s and 70s that, um, I'm not saying that's the only reason behind it, but did that bring it to the forefront in your mind? I think, I think that was a, it was an effect. You know, we all heard from our families and friends, uh, you know, uh, the history of the Vietnam War. We, of course, personally experienced the officers who had returned and were our instructors from West Point. It was a time of change, including the civil rights movement. But we were cadets at West Point. We wanted to be Army officers. We weren't, this was not civil disobedience. We didn't refuse to go to chapel. We didn't lay down in the aisle and protest. Uh, some did, like Mark Rudd at Columbia University, where they, they took the students, took over the the, the president of the university's offices and shut down the university. That was civil disobedience. Yes. We did it through the chain of command. We asked the chain of command formally, in writing, and in meetings, and in discussions, consider changing this. It's a contradiction. Mm. We shouldn't be swearing to uphold the Constitution and then blatantly violating it at the same time. That creates a... You know, it's. Uh, I keep thinking of that idea from Star Trek. You know, there's a there's a or, uh, not Star Trek from Star Wars. That's Star right. Wars. You know, there's a break in the force. You know, there's a, there's a there's a tremor in the force in that contradiction, and that people noticed those. Uh, we did uh, in the '60s and '70s, and thought maybe something should be done about them. And this resulted in a in a lawsuit or a court case, uh, correct? It, it did. We didn't do that. We did. We administratively went as high as the deputy commandant, who was Colonel Alexander Haig, uh, later an aide to mm-hmm. Richard Nixon and Secretary of State under under uh, uh, President Reagan. But as cadets, he had been our regimental commander, and he was a, a key figure at West Point who said, no, we don't need you guys to raise this issue. Just do your job. You know, later when you get to be generals, you can have some impact on this. But this is not a to you to do now. We got a lot of resistance as cadets to this idea of simply asking the chain of command to consider a change. Later, uh, uh, a cadet at the Naval Academy filed a lawsuit, and because of my experience in seeking an administrative remedy at West Point, 
I was called as a witness there as a young officer in the 82nd Airborne Division. The Army didn't like that either. So I got a lot of pushback. Uh, we all did in retaliation. And that's part of the story that's in Remaking the American Dream. Ian, also reflecting back, uh, you grew up in the, or are in the Chicago area. I believe your book also deals with some of the politics of the time and uh, what was mm-hmm. uh, sometimes referred to as the political machine of Chicago. What surprised yeah. you or what is surprising in your book or interesting, perhaps, that the reader will be gravitating toward? Well, when someone stands up for values, and that's really what make up the American dream or values, it's not just about the economy and whether you do better materially. It's about the values that drive our country. And it was those values that led to the clash of values at West Point. So when you suffer some for that, you get some retaliation and you get some pushback and you get some people telling you, we don't really want you to be an officer in the Army anymore and we don't want to promote you. Uh, there's There's a way you need to recover from that. And the way I recovered was to meet Dan Walker, who was challenging the Mayor Daley machine for governor. And I Mm. became part of his campaign and active politically in Illinois as a result. From 1960 till or 69 till now is uh, quite a distance. The story that's here yeah. is uh, re- is filled with detail. Did you keep notes, or is this just still fresh in your mind? Uh, the activities that you participated in in the late 60s and early 70s. That's a, that's an interesting question about what we remember and what we don't remember. Yes. And as an author, when you write a book, and then other people who were there at the time who observed these same events. Uh, talk to you about, do they, you remember it that way? Do I remember it that way? It's really interesting to see uh, people point out a few things you may have missed, but mostly reinforce uh, the memory. So I guess I've got a good memory. We had a lot of records. I mean, when you go testify in court, there's a transcript. When you file written uh, complaints to the inspector general, you have those documents. Uh, and it's hard to remember uh, being put up against the wall in a colonel's office as a first classman at West Point and being asked to resign right now because you shouldn't be raising these issues. Wow. So that kind of that kind of stressful response, I think, uh, uh, I think it does strengthen your memory a little bit. Is what I'm saying. Absolutely, sounds uh, as though it was a challenging time for you personally. The, the 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 title of the book, "Remaking the American Dream." What is uh, your viewpoint now of remaking the American Dream? How does it change, or how does it uh, factor into the story you've told? I think it happens all the time. I think the American Dream. It was the the, the phrase was coined in 1931 by a historian. And he said it was about values, you know. One of those key values, by the way, is freedom of religion and our other freedoms uh, that flow from that, including economic freedom. But it's a bottom-up kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It was people in the American Revolution that stood up bottom-up. You know, those were volunteers that served with George Washington. Those were people who came forward to Jefferson and Madison and asked for religious freedom in Virginia. Much of this is very bottom-up. And when 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 the culture and people in the bottom stand up for values, they're they're standing for the American dream. And when they make progress, they improve it. When they fail to stand up, it deteriorates a little bit. So it's an ongoing thing. We're building it every day by all of our actions at the grassroots. We're building it right now in response to the coronavirus and how we respond to that as people. Very good. Uh, David, how long did it take to re 
refresh your memory and and put this into print. You have just a little over what is 180 pages or 130 pages, something of that two, nature. Two, 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 236. 236 to be exact. Um, I didn't know how to write a book. I'm I'm a new author. Okay, I think it's great that now new authors, you know, because of the way things have changed on the internet and in in uh, independent publishing can write. It's, it's to me, it's like another Gutenberg press out there happening. Absolutely. But I didn't know how exactly how to do it. But I knew I could sit down and write 500 words in the morning. Uh, you know, that's what was the best time for me. And I figured out that if I could do that 140 days in a row. Uh, I could write a book of uh, of about uh, the amount, the 236 pages. Hmm. Now, of course, along the way, you get sidetracked. There's yes. things you don't know about the history of religion in Europe, for instance. You need to go research to add to the book. So it, it took me between two and three years to write the book, but uh, I found it very, very fun. Very interesting. It really stirs your your creative uh, energies uh, to sit down and do that every day, and then revise it, work through it, research it, and produce a final product that you're proud of. In the uh, observations of remaking the American Dream, as the reader gets immersed into the content of the 1969 and 70, is there anything that might surprise them, at least from your perspective, that maybe you didn't realize when you began to share this story? Uh, I, yeah, I think there are surprises in there. I, you know, I I think uh, laying out what was the motivation. What, what, you know, I was in the top third of my class. I was doing fine at West Point. Yes. You know, I I was not one of those people marching against the war down at Columbia University or New York City. We were doing our duty there. What motivated us, you know, to kind of go off on this tangent to 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 make this uh, make this challenge, and. I tried to explore that in the book and in my own mind and talk a lot about my grandmother, talking to my grandmother out feeding cattle. I was raised on the farm when she was torn between her Baptist beliefs and her desire to vote not for Richard Nixon for president in 1960, but for John Kennedy, the Catholic. She had great reservations about that, and uh, she found it hard to talk to my father and others about it. And I was just a teenager. She talked to me about it. Those experiences really create this underlying understanding and motivation that draws from your upbringing, upbringing on the farm and in your local church and so forth. And I think how that happens may be a little surprising to people. Your ideal reader, who do you think is going to find this the most challenging or rewarding as they explore its pages? Well, I, my classmates at West Point. I think West Point's a great institution. And sure, we were complaining about one of its one of its things that needed to be changed and updated, uh, but it served this country well for a couple centuries now. Uh, and those uh, graduates, in some cases, the children of some of those graduates, have been the people that have responded the most to me in 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 in, in the most interesting ways. Uh, veterans, I think, and there are fewer of them now than there used to be. You know, we don't have as many people in the military now as we used to have. Uh, but I think veterans would be very interested because veterans today are all volunteers. They step forward just as we did back in the 60s at West Point to stand up in service to the country. I think those are the people that are interested. And I think anybody that's that's seeing a conflict out there that conflicts with they, what they think are the values of the American dream uh, needs to know these stories. Beautiful. 
any challenges that you weren't anticipating as you began that uh, you know resolved themselves or you were able to resolve in completing this? Uh, yes, I think I think uh, I think it's a challenge to 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 stay creative and not get distracted. A lot of people talk about writer's block. I never had writer's block. I kept wanting to explore even more. I, you know, I had to, I had to cut it back. I had to hold myself back some, and I look forward to taking on another challenge to write a book. It's an interesting process that I didn't know much about when I started, uh, but it's, it's a very worthwhile thing to do. And then it's even greater than to hear feedback from people, you know, people I went to elementary school with, or other people that I don't, didn't even know uh, who contacted me by email or otherwise with their comments or questions. All of those things are part of a very interesting creative process. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. So, so as everybody is staying home and not working, instead of watching the NCAA or 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 the start of baseball, uh, get on the internet and and uh, go on to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or your favorite place and find a good book to read. Mine would be a good one. Uh, it's a good way to use your time. I think that's a good advertising promotional uh, insert you've just added to it. The title of the book, again, is Remaking the American Dream. My guest, David Vaught, V-A-U-G-H-T, if you're looking online under his name. David, I get the impression that in addition to this book, you may be uh, tempted to write something in the future. What are your goals at this moment? I, you know, one of the things that really helped me writing this book was retracing my father's footsteps in World War II. But I just found that really cleared my mind. And, it, it uh, you know, sometimes you've got to get in a creative space. For me, that was a creative space mm. for a couple of weeks. So it'll be where the creativity takes me. And I look forward to, to finding that. I haven't finalized on a subject yet, but it'll come. I'm sure it will. This book, again, is available on Barnes & Noble and other online booksellers. And uh, your local bookseller can also order it in by name, Remaking the American Dream, and under the author's name, David Vaught, V-A-U-G-H-T. Do a search under this, not only now, but in the future, because I have a feeling... David, you're going to be sharing more stories and insight in the uh, in the distant and not too distant future. Thank you again for joining me and sharing your story, well, thanks, sir. Jay. My pleasure. I appreciate it. My, for Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book's title is Bethlehem's Brothers, written by author Ronald Hera, who joins me from near Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, welcome, sir, to the program. 
Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. This is the first in a series of four books. Have you always had a desire to be an author, or have you written other articles and, and publications that have been shared with the public? Well, it, when I was originally started writing, I was an engineer, and I wrote SAE papers and technical papers of that sort. Mm. Uh, but I always wanted to write something creative. So about uh, 20 years ago, I began doing that. Beautiful. This book would fall in the category of biblical or historical novel. Is it strictly fiction? How would you describe your book? Ah, well, <laughs> it's a little it's a little strange from that standpoint. <laughs> uh, the locations and many of the surrounding events are are very accurate. The two protagonists, Simeon and Enoch, on the other hand, are completely fictional. Mm. And uh, actually, I like to think of it as an action drama book. And the reason I say that is that uh, there's all this conflict between the Romans, the Jews, and the Christians, and uh, it goes in that order. The hierarchy is that the Romans are on top, (laughs) the Jews are subject to them, and the Christians are at the bottom. Uh, and uh, so it, it becomes evident in the book because the book has a chase scenes and various things that are going on. And it, it does. It has kind of an action adventure part of it, it even has a little romance. Oh. Uh, and then, uh, of course, it is fiction, but it's historical fiction. You have over 308 pages. Uh, that's a fairly extensive covering of this action adventure. Have you had anyone read it and reflect on it as though it were an Indiana Jones storyline? Yes, actually, I have. Uh, One of the things, you know, Indiana Jones, how it starts out, he's got this chase scene and the bad guys are after him and he has to get out of the he has to get out of the cave in time for the rolling ball and everything. Well, I have a chase scene in mine where the Romans are after uh, um, one of the protagonists and uh, this poor woman who is who who is misled into being a zealot, and uh, the Romans are after him, and they have to run down a hill and, and wade into the Sea of Galilee and hop in a boat and disappear. And the, mm. of course, the Roman soldiers don't have a boat, so they get away. Ah. Uh, so it's uh, a little bit like that. What you've described sounds like it would work great in the uh, movie arena. Oh uh, yes, uh, there is a screenplay and a pilot for a series, and I think it would make an excellent series. The uh, The whole Brothers series uh, goes from the time the children were killed in Bethlehem until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Mm. So it's a lifetime. Those first three books go for a complete lifetime. So you, you have some idea what's going on, you know, uh, with the Romans and the Jews and the, uh, and the Christians. And so it's chronologically continuous. It's a great idea. I know a lot of people have an opinion about what happened in the first century, especially related to the three classes of people, if I want to call them that, that are included in your book. Did you have to do a lot of research? Was this something that just bubbled to the surface? How would you describe the writing process? Uh, The writing process, I actually enjoyed doing the research because I learned all kinds of things. For instance, you know, Christians have a communion. Yes. Uh, and uh, the Romans thought they were drinking a dead man's blood, you know, and, and how gross hmm. that must have been to them. Uh, and that, so there were a lot of uh, misconceptions, I would say, on everyone's part. 
so I enjoyed the research and learned a lot of things. You know, it was it was interesting. Besides that particular piece of history, anything else that bubbled to the surface that was unique about your research and discoveries? Well, Josephus uh, is a historian, uh, actually a Jewish historian, mm-hmm. and uh, I found out that Josephus was an interpreter for the Romans when they destroyed Jerusalem. And what he would do is he would interpret what the zealots were saying back to the Romans when they were yelling and trying to negotiate at the, on the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, Josephus then wrote about this, so he has a firsthand account of what went on in the fall of Jerusalem, which was wonderful. You know, I didn't have to make up a lot of it. A lot of it is very, very accurate in the last book. Brothers forever. Many of us have heard of Josephus and even studied uh, some of his uh, text, textual content. In fact, I have a book in my library that is the writings of Josephus. There are misconceptions also about the uh, the Jewish subjugation to the Romans. How long did that take place? Was it till seventy A.D. or much longer than that? Oh, it went on longer than that. Uh, they, uh, in fact, in one thirty. A.D., there was another rebellion on the part of uh, people there in Jerusalem and that area, uh, even though there weren't many there anymore. And that is when actually Jerusalem was really burned out and destroyed and completely abandoned. Hmm. Uh, In 70 A.D., there were still homes there. Uh, Uh, So people would go back. They didn't go back after 130 A.D., I have a little weak history of uh, what took place in that time period, so uh, your book will give me great insight into at least this period of time up to 70 A.D. What do you want the reader to take away from this book, uh, besides the adventure and uh, the excitement that you've included? Well, and the history, of course, but, yes. you know, uh, one of the things, and it's, it's interesting now that we have this virus going on, yes. uh, we have hard times. And we think to ourselves, oh, gee, this is terrible. Mm. Hey, let me tell you, it's nothing like it was back then. It was terrible back then. And uh, people just struggled to say it, stay alive. You know, that was their that was their goal in life was to stay alive and raise their children and, and have, a, have a home, you know. And the struggles we have today are nothing compared to that. You have uh, chosen the name of some well-known or at least known biblical characters in the names of Simeon and Esther. Anything specific about that that caught your attention, or did you just want to draw from something that was familiar? Simeon was a kind of means the listener, and Simeon was standing far away from Jesus, could, could not really hear him, yes. all right? But yes. he knew he was speaking, and people were coming and being being uh, healed and that kind of thing. And so Simeon could hear and hear nothing else except Jesus's speech. Interesting. Speaking. He could hear nothing else, which was somewhat miraculous, you know, and and Jesus's message was, was to him. So I thought that was kind of neat. That is neat. That's a story or anecdotal comment that I haven't heard before. Is that one that you invented, or did that actually take place? Because I'm a little foggy-headed on that myself. Yeah. Well, I think it's. Uh, I think I'm, I think I made that up. <laughs> it's a. It's, it's a good one. It, it, it grabbed me. I, yeah. You did it. Yeah. There's a, there's another place where I kind of took a license. Uh, 
uh, on the road to Emmaus. Yes. Uh, Cleopas is on the road to Emmaus, but he's on the road to Emmaus with someone else. Uh, in the Bible, it says, you know, he and another were walking, and, and, and they meet Jesus and that kind of thing. Well, so I took it upon myself to make one of my characters the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. Now, as a reader, as I approach this book, the excitement and all of the adventure and the storyline itself, am I going to need to be versed in religious study in order to enjoy this, or is this a broad-stroke <laughs> novel? Oh, absolutely not. You don't need to know anything. It's it's a story about two brothers living in that time frame. You can just look at it totally like that and not care whether it's accurate with the Bible or anything because you're not going to know, but it's for everyone. And uh, like I said, one of the main things I want people to get from it is these were terrible times and nothing like nothing like it is today. And it is an adventure. So, you know, you have all the conflict and everything going on. Think of it as a third world country occupied by a powerful force. Hmm. Mm. Good description. Look at it that way. A good description. Is this like other books out there? I know there are a lot of uh, historical and call them religious novels. Uh, what's different about this one? Well, one thing, one thing is, of course, it is an action adventure kind of thing. Right. Uh, and it is a drama. I mean, you know, they're. There are people that are uh, uh, dying. There are people that uh, miscarry. Uh, there are people that uh, have to escape, you know, f- and they're and they're per- totally innocent uh, from from, the, from whatever the Romans are chasing them for. But but I think one of the things that makes it different, and and I, I'm going to use this phrase because this is what one of the producers uh, of the movies said. He says, "Is this just another Jesus book?" Mm-hmm. Okay. And no, it is not. This story is not centered around Jesus. It's not his apostles or any of that. Jesus is there. He does a healing. Uh, You know, he is crucified. Things change, you know, after that. But this is not all about Jesus. This is about the people that lived there and the experiences that they had. A lot of people said, oh, wow, you know, I wish I could have been there when, when Jesus was there. I don't know. (laughs) Doesn't sound too good to me. (laughs) What you're describing is an excellent approach to storytelling. Uh, Maybe this will be made into a movie or a a series, let's hope. I hope so. How long did it take to complete? Were you struck with any difficulties in in getting this completed? Yes. uh, my, My difficulty was I wasn't devoted to writing it enough at the beginning. I would write a little bit. And then I would just live my life and mess around and that kind of thing. Then I'd come back and write a little bit more. So Bethlehem's Brothers took me 10 years to write. Wow. Well, the second book took me, the second book took me two years. So <laughs> I was much better at it. And uh, also the other thing is, you know, writing is an art. And I had an art of writing, but it was more technical. And so I had to get into writing conversations and and describing events and that kind of thing. That So I had to kind of learn to write at the same time I was writing this thing. It's beautifully done. The title of it, listeners, is Bethlehem's Brothers, written by Ronald Hera, H-E-R-A. Ronald, there's more coming in the future. Obviously, this particular book needs to be a launching pad for those and the foundation. How do they get a copy of this? Amazon.com is just fine. 
there's uh, another outfit called Page Turner Press that has it, but most people go to Amazon.com because it's easy to do. Have you had any reviews that have been published yet? Yes, I have. Uh, Kirkus and Pacific both recommend the book. One of the things that Kirkus said was that uh, it was it didn't read like a historical documentary, but it read like a uh, um, this may not be exact words, but it read like an adventure, and that was exactly what the author wanted. Uh-huh. He wanted it to read like an adventure. Accomplished for sure. Ron, have you uh, launched a website yet? Yes, RonaldHera.com. And Hera again is spelled H-E-R-A. Sir, thank you for mm-hmm. sharing your story, the background into this first novel in the series, Bethlehem's Brothers. And we look forward to visiting with you in the future, and I might say, and hopefully, this will develop into something for the screen of some type. Uh, thank you again for sharing your story. Okay, read the book before the movie. Oh, absolutely. For Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.